Our scripture reading this day will be from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 15. There's a contrasting in this chapter that I want you to catch the edge of as we read through it. There's a contrast between Jesus dealing with the religious leaders and Jesus dealing with an irreligious person and the response that the two of them have to him. As you will see today, being right with God means that we meet God on His terms. Amen. And we come to Him His way. He does not meet us on our terms. He does not come to us our way. He has provided already for us. But in Matthew's Gospel, the Holy Spirit has put together these two encounters with Jesus, one with the Pharisees and one with this Canaanite woman, and we see the disciples are still caught in between these two groups, just like we are going to see in John chapter 4 later. Matthew writes, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus answered them and said, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever you might benefit from me is given to God, and he need not honor his father. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. Some of the scariest words in the scripture mm -hmm. for God to leave you alone let them alone he says they are blind guides of the blind and if a blind man guides a blind man both will fall into a pit now Peter answered and said to him explain the parable to us and Jesus said are you still lacking in understanding also do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and goes into the sewer. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man, 
And going away from there, Jesus withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and were pleading with him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and was bowing down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed. And what? Father, we praise you for allowing us to be here this day. You have opened the way for us to freely and enjoyably come here this day. Lord, to have put it in our heart to be here this day. We pray that you will make our time this Lord's Day morning eternally profitable for us. Eternally profitable for your kingdom on this earth. <coughs> that it might produce an eternal fruit of righteousness. We might leave this place forever different as we are confronted by the truths and the depths of the gospel in the life and times of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we grow in the grace and knowledge of Him, may we become better prepared and better suited servants of Christ. May our Lord Jesus Christ be honored to the utmost here this day. Bless these people for having come. Not in a material way, but in an eternal way. May we leave this place proclaiming what a great Savior we serve. It is not in our merits or by our design or even by our idea that we come before you in prayer. In Christ you have given your people the right to be called the children of God. In Christ, you have opened the throne room of heaven to us at all times and at any time. In Christ, you have given us the great privilege to cast all of our cares upon you. Because you now care for us. It is no small religious exercise that we experience. It is in the heavenlies that we stand before you. We stand before you in the merits of Christ and the alien righteousness that is ours through faith in the finished work and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in all these things, it is in His name, in His name alone that we pray. Amen. We've come now to the time that we set aside every...
Lord's Day to meet here to do. And that is to open the Word of God and to preach the Word and to receive the preached Word and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you have your copy of the Scripture, if you have your Bible with you, open with me to John chapter 4. John's Gospel in chapter 4. We will be looking at the very end of this section where Jesus is having this interaction beginning and completing a revival in the city of Sychar in Samaria. That won't be the end of the chapter, but it is the end of this section. This has been the longest and is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with any individual person that he has had with this woman from Samaria, a woman whose name we will not know until we walk together with her in heaven before the throne of God. I want to begin in verse 1. I want us to capture this entire scene. And we will come to verse 39, and verses 39 to 45 will be the section for our perusal today. But it does not find itself haphazardly placed out of sync. It is in the midst of John's eyewitness testimony of the life and times of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to view it as that. I, I have been, I told the men in the office this morning, I've been, I've been a bit apprehensive in going through this chapter, knowing that verse 43 through 45 are coming and trying to figure out where this fits, how this holds together. And I, I'm certain that the Lord has brought me to a, a full conclusion of why that is there in the last few days. And we will unpack that here today. I want to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 4. We will pick up uh, in Jesus' life as he is leaving Jerusalem after he, the cleansing of the temple, after his interaction with Nicodemus. He is leaving to go back to Galilee. He's going back to Cana and uh, the area of Capernaum and Nazareth where he was raised. And he has had to pass through Samaria, as we will see. And then we will read this interaction with this Samaritan woman, and we were going to come to the conclusion of his interaction with this woman. So stay with me as we read. John writes, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where did you get that water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. 
Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Pray with me. Father, we turn to your word, and in these moments we petition you to be our instructor and our guide. We look to you to be the one to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We look to you and to you alone to be the one that can change the hardest of hearts. The one who is at work at all things for the good of your people, even, even in the working of your spirit through the preaching of your word. Father, as we look at this episode in Jesus' life. Pray that you will help us to see, maybe for the first time, the truth of the gospel. The simplicity and the complexity of the gospel. That no one will leave here with an erroneous view of the gospel. That no one will leave here with with any expectation of less than what the gospel promises or more than what the gospel promises. As I stand here before these people, I do not ask you to help me. I plead with you to use me, to make me sufficient. Use me as you choose. That I might be your instrument for your glory. And that these people here this day would hear from you through me. And that you will be honored to the utmost by our time. It is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. If I were to sit down with you and ask you this question, are you a believer? I wonder what your answer would be. Your answer would probably depend upon the context of the question. A believer in what? More importantly, a believer in whom? Unfortunately, and I've been faced with it recently, there is much confusion 
about these questions. The question of being a believer. A believer in what or a believer in whom? Much confusion about these questions exists in this epoch of time as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a conversation with a man yesterday that made this quirk in, in the conversation that we had. And it was a lively conversation. It's a man that I know, that, I, that I've met uh, many times. I have a, a very good relationship with him. I, I've, I've, I've grasped from some of our previous conversations that he, he is very likely a believer. And in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, he made this statement. The man took three nails for me. And that was in the context of, do we stand for Christ or do we not in, in public? And in, in, in politics in, in particular, we were discussing. And then he went on to use the language that all of the men that I worked with on the tugboat used in the same conversation. And I thought, what a dichotomy. Although I was not as impressed as you may think when he used the expression, the man took three nails for me. Because it is the God-man that took the full wrath of God for me. And the suffering and the agony on the cross was not the nails. As much as it was the abandoning wrath of God. However, however, let's, let's, let's back up from that because I do not intend to to castigate my friend for that. I did not have the time to really dig into that statement and, and ask him why he is living on both sides of a fence. You're claiming to, to be a believer in, in the, the risen Savior who died for the sins of his people, and at the same time, you are acting like and talking like a regular run-of-the-mill natural-born unbeliever who is at odds with God. There's much confusion about what it is to be a believer. Believe what? To believe what about him? The whole world believes in Jesus Christ. You know how I know that? Because there's a calendar. It says we're in the year 2024. The year of our Lord, 2024. And the world's calendar is set on the birth of this man, Jesus Christ. But what version of Jesus do you believe in? What version of Jesus do people believe? Many like to focus on the miracle worker version of Jesus. Man, he could do some pretty awesome stuff. We kind of sang about some of that this morning and, and telling about the, the, the power that he has. But friends, the greatest miracle that Jesus has ever worked is the saving of a soul. He healed a lot of people. He, he effectively dismissed and banished disease from Galilee and Judea while he was on this earth in, in three and a half years' time. He effectively banished and, and got rid of, of disease and, and, and all of the, the handicap. And, and he did what would be the case today if the gift of healing was still a reality that these shysters throw around on television. He went to the hospitals. We're going to see in the next chapter that he went to the colonnades where the people that were blind and lame and paralyzed were, and he healed them there. We like the miracle worker 
But the greatest miracle that he ever worked in your life, regardless of what your health is, the greatest miracle that he ever worked in your life was to remove the heart of stone from you and to replace it with a heart of flesh that is pliable and malleable and influenced by the Holy Spirit that you might be saved. So, what version of Jesus? The miracle worker? How about the tender forgiver? We really like that. Oh, Jesus was the friend of sinners. That's true. That is absolutely true. But he's the friend of sinners that come to him on his terms. He was not the forgiver of those that did not come to him and recognize their need for forgiveness. We read of Jesus saying to the woman caught in adultery, Woman, where are your persecutors she said there are none lord he said neither do i condemn you go your way and sin no more well we like that because we need to be forgiven maybe the version of jesus that that people want to believe in is the one who can keep you out of hell man i just you know i i just don't want to die and go to hell I don't know anybody in their right mind that would say they want to die and go to hell. One Scottish songwriter wrote some decades ago that he considered himself to be on the highway to hell. And he couldn't wait to get there because all his friends would be there too. And within a year he drank himself to death and he found out that that highway to hell is not anything that he ever dreamt he would want to experience. And it is eternally too late for him. And it's eternally too late for all that, that leave this life without Jesus Christ. But there is far more to what Jesus did than merely escaping hell. At that point, we're only focused on what he's going to take care of at the end of our life. And that's taken care of, and now I can live free in this life. Well, if that's the case, why is the New Testament riddled with commands to follow? Or maybe we, the version of Jesus is this sovereign Savior. We, we really want this sovereign that is there that, that can take care of all of the problems that I have and fix all of the things that I lay before him. And he can come in and, and handle any problem. The, the sovereign Savior for whom nothing is difficult. Well, he is indeed the sovereign Savior. The one for whom nothing is difficult. And we know that because he has dragged us out of spiritual death and given us spiritual life and the gift of faith and has brought us into his kingdom in spite of us. He is the sovereign savior. Maybe the version of Jesus that you've been confronted with is the God-man who came to seek and to save the lost in order to bring them through this world to the abode of the Almighty. That's really almost akin to the, merely the idea of keeping one out of hell, but it's getting a little closer to the fact. Which Jesus you believe in matters. Your life and eternity depend on the right Jesus being your Lord and saving you for time and eternity. It matters. We use words in church. We're, we're going through 2-7 with my current 2-7 group, and we're, we're looking at the testimony time. Those of you who've been through that, you remember the shock that you had when you were told that you were going to have to give your testimony to the class in four minutes. Some of you were shocked, thinking there's no way I can come up with four minutes of stuff to say. And the rest of you normal people said there's no way I can whittle it down to four minutes. 
But part of that instruction is to, to try to use words that are a little more user-friendly in the context of talking to an unbeliever. You don't want to use churchy words is kind of the idea. And that's, there's some validity to that. But there are a couple of churchy words that we use in, in the church from the Scripture that are somewhat interchangeable. We use the term believer. And when, when we use the term believer in this church, we are talking about one who has put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteous life that, gave us, that produced a righteousness that God will accept on our behalf. He died a sinner's death to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. And he therefore becomes our savior because he has paid the price and provided the righteousness that we need to stand before God. It is somewhat multifaceted. And when we refer to a believer, that word is synonymous with being saved. Being saved is a diminutive or smaller expression of the word salvation. Then we're confronted with another question. What is salvation? What is being saved? We hear that so often in church. You need to be saved. You must be saved. What is being saved or getting saved? The answers to these questions, friends, must, they must come from God himself. They cannot come from a man or a group of men or a group of religionists. It cannot come from man's perspective because man would never have been able to reach God on his own if God had not stepped in and bridged the gap himself. And he defines the terms of peace between man and himself. Only he can define what is acceptable to him. If you were building a house and you had a set of plans that you had agreed on, you've paid an architect to draw these plans up, you hand them over to the, to the, the contractor, they're building your home, would you ask your neighbor to be the one to go in and make sure that it's done right? No. Only you can decide what's acceptable to you. When it's time to go down the punch list, would you ask your mother-in-law to go in and make sure that the punch list was right? I would. It would be fun to watch. No, the only one that can define what is acceptable to you is you. Therefore, it only stands to reason that only God can define what is acceptable to him. Only he has the authority to say when you or I have done enough. And let's remember that he has provided the only way. He provides the only life worth living. And he alone proclaims the truth once for all delivered to his people, past, present, and future. Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is a way to the Father. There is a way to be saved. And it is through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sole source of all that we need for life and service. He is the sole source of all that we need for life, to live and survive and service, to serve and worship him in, a, in a, a life of active worship. And he calls that salvation. Salvation, by the Bible's definition, <clears throat> is this. Submission to Jesus Christ's authority and obeying his word. Submission to Jesus Christ's authority and obeying his word. 
We live in a world where so much is put on this idea of the amazing power that Jesus has to deliver. And they, they, they want to take Jesus and his power and mold it into things that, that, that are interesting to men. Friends, merely being amazed by Jesus' power and his signs is only an entertaining distraction from the sinner's real need, which is peace with God on God's terms. Therefore, the Jesus that you have been introduced to matters. The Jesus that you believe in matters. It matters. Because you need a Savior. That wasn't a past need. That is not a future need. Certainly was a past need. Certainly is a future need. But it is a present and real need at this moment. You, whoever you are, you need a Savior. And you don't need a Savior to save you from hell. You need a Savior to save you from God himself. You know, hell has no power. Hell's just sitting there waiting for God to use it. Hell is God's hell. It is God's form of punishment. And you need to be saved from the wrath of God himself. And you must be saved from God on God's terms You need a Savior that can save you from the wrath of God and lead you in his will to live a righteous life that honors him. That is why Jesus Christ must be Lord and Savior. We don't start with Savior. You start with Lord. Because you know how you you work. Your mind wants to start trying to split things up and say, well... We'll get one and then work on the other. No, it's a package deal. You go to the store with a a dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill. They don't really care about a dollar bill anymore so much. But you go with a hundred dollar bill, what do they do? They get to hold it up to the light. I don't know what they're looking for. They look at the front and the back. They make sure that it has the front of the bill and the back of the bill. If you brought them a piece of paper that looked like a $100 bill, felt like a $100 bill, smelled like a $100 bill, said it was a $100 bill, and looked at the front of it, and it's a $100 bill, held it up to the light and saw whatever they're looking for. It's a $100 bill, and they turn it around, and there's nothing on the back. Is that still a $100 bill? No. Salvation in Jesus Christ is like that. He's not Savior or Lord. He's not the front or the back of a $100 bill, friends. He is Lord and Savior, or he is Judge. That is what the Bible defines. That is not my definition. It's what the Bible clearly presents. Now, if we want to take a single verse out of context and hold it up and say, well, this verse is what I'm clinging to. Okay, well, there's like 32,000 other verses in this Bible. You think they're there just to make sure that you had an assortment to choose from? The salvation that I've just described to you is highly distorted in this fallen world. But the Bible, being the word of God and coming from the mind of God, and this God that knew what this world would become and knew how the heart and mind of men and how the the working of the evil one would would produce such distortions and, and such confusion in the church, the Bible, in many, many places, warns us And redirects us back toward the true gospel. And we see that warning and redirection here in John chapter 4. In verses 39 to 45, we see the conclusion of this, at first, strange conversation 
that Jesus has with this woman. And we see here, beginning in verse 39, we see the reason that Jesus had to go through Samaria. We've been here for quite some time, as you know. Took a little break during the end of the year to look at, at the, the five solas of the Reformation. Took some time to extend time to look at the Reformation. We came right back here. We saw in the beginning that there was an unavoidable meeting that Jesus had with this woman at this well. He got rid of the disciples. He is there. He's there to meet her. We see an unexpected greeting. He initiates the conversation with her just like every believer had their conversion initiated by the Lord Jesus Christ. You weren't looking for him. You were following the prince of the power of the air, going your own way, only wanting the idea of God to come in and, and make things a little bit easier for you. A God that you could bribe, a God that you could control. But friends, when the, the truth of the gospel came to send a wrecking ball into your soul, it was God that moves first. And in this lady's life, Jesus moves first. It's an unexpected greeting of a Jewish man to a Samaritan woman. Then he starts to tell her about living water. And there's an understandable misunderstanding in her life. And that understandable misunderstanding reaches its apex when she says, Sir, give me this water that I'll never be thirsty and not have to come here to draw water again. And then we see an unescapable confronting. He had to confront her sin. And friends, if you're going to be saved, if anyone is ever going to be saved, sin must be confronted. Sin must be put front and center because Jesus didn't die to give you an example of how to live selflessly. Jesus died to give you the opportunity to be saved. The possibility, the reality of salvation for God's people is what was the cross. That is why we have it standing here. I've been looking at it. I'm thinking about taking that cloth off of it to make it just that more stark. Probably won't. I just had the thought this morning. It is a stark reminder of what God had to do to save someone. It was necessary. And sin must be confronted. And as, as he is moving her heart... She says, look, I know you're a prophet and I know what you're telling me. But I know that the scripture says there is one coming. There is a Messiah that's coming and I'm waiting for him and he will lead. I'll follow him anywhere and he will lead me in the truth. I know that Messiah is coming and when he arrives, he will tell us all things. And we see an unequivocal revealing. Jesus hid it from Nicodemus. Up until this point, he's hidden it from his disciples. And here he reveals it to this most unexpected person on all the planet he reveals i am the messiah i who speak to you am he let me see an unanticipated sharing she runs off in the context she just the disciples show up she leaves the water jar and runs off and we think well that's the end of that episode oh man they ruined it those clowns showed up at just the wrong time and, and ran her off what we could not have anticipated at that point is that she would run back to town and say, hey, fellas, ladies and gentlemen, I think the Messiah is here. And we see that this entire town had seen the plowing work of the Holy Spirit before Jesus arrives. Then the last time we were together, looking at verses 31 to 38, we see an unanticipated harvesting. Jesus says, look, the fields are white for harvest. This town of people is coming here. One who reaps is gathering wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. 
And it could have ended there. It really could have ended there and moved into verse 48 or 46. And he gets to Cana. Could have just moved from right there. To, it would have been seamless. It would have been easy. But there's more for us than that. We see in verses 39 to 45 an unmistakable believing. We wonder what is true saving faith? What does it look like? What, what is belief? Belief in whom? Believe in what? Here we see it. And we see it in the most unexpected way. We, we tend to lose a lot of things in translation going from the Greek to the English. The, the precision of the Greek and the, the seeming incompetence of the English very often it, it loses something in translation. That happens in any translating work from one language to another. Things get lost. There are colloquialisms. But friends, one of the things that we certainly lose here is the animosity that existed between the Israeli people and the Samaritan people. And that these, the, the fact that Jesus would be speaking to this woman baffled the disciples back in, back in verse 27. It baffled her. What are you doing talking to a Samaritan woman? The fact that these people come running out of this town to this beleaguered Jewish rabbi tells us that there was something else going on here. Something we need to catch the edge of. Verses 39 to 40, we see shallow belief. 41 to 42, we see sincere belief. We have that contrasted in verses 43 to 45 with selfish belief. There are really only three options when it comes to belief in the Savior. We see a lot of shallow belief. And we see a tremendous amount of selfish belief in this day and age. What can he do for me? We want to see what sincere belief looks like. We need to know what this looks like. I feel like taking Brother Cliff's advice right now. How many of you have been to an open baby shower? You know what that is? You ladies know what an open baby shower is? There's not really a set time. We're going to be here from this time to that. Just come and go as you please. One day I'm going to have an open sermon time and you can just come and go as you please and I'm going to go till I'm done and uh, you can come back at five and I'll start over I'll try to discipline myself today we see shallow belief in verses 39 to 40 verses 39 we see a positive reception Verse 40, we're going to see a positive response and a positive request. But there's a positive reception in verse 39. Look at this. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. This woman comes back to this town and says, I found a man who has come and see a man who had told me all that I ever did in verse 29. Can this, can this be? Can it, can it be the Christ? The word so in verse 40 tells us there was a positive response to this. There's a positive reception because in verse 39, they're coming from the town. They, they believed and now they're, they're coming out of the town. We, we see in verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming with her. Jesus sees them coming and says, look, the fields are white for harvest. 
Many from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, she went and told him, this man told me all that I ever did. All they know about Jesus is what this woman said. We look at that and say, man, they believed that? That's all she said and they believed? Yeah. Well, man, what did she do? We got to learn. What, she must have said it right. Or she must have had some Ron Popeil type of, uh, of, of, of giving them this, this gospel. No. No. Friends, there's no way to explain how and why and when you decided to turn your life over to Jesus Christ, except this, that that was the Holy Spirit's time. It wasn't that you say, well, you know, finally somebody explained it in a way I could understand it. That's almost true. But it wasn't the one that said it, it's the one that caused you to understand it. Oh, I've got to get the gospel right. Preacher, I've got to get it right. How, how do I go to my relative? And, and how, how do I say it right? Uh, you could just like take your Bible and read it directly to them if you really want to just say it right. Your responsibility is to be salt and light. Your responsibility is to, to sow and sometimes to reap, but know that the sowing and the reaping go together, and the one that causes the growth is the Holy Spirit. Paul said, I sowed, others reap. Others water, but the Holy Spirit caused the growth. It was a positive reception, an unexpected reception. She just shows up from the well and says, hey, I met a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, granted, she probably gave a few more details. How would anybody know this about me except him? Can this be the Christ? You see a positive response in verse 41. The word so. It means it's a term of conclusion. Because of what she said, the Samaritans came to him. So the Samaritans came to him. They left and they go to Jesus out of town. This is the middle of the day. These people are at work. Their shops are open. The, the, the blacksmith is doing his thing. The, the, the people are living their life in the middle of the day. She shows up in the middle of the day and says, hey, I think the Christ is at the well. And they drop what they're doing and they leave town. To go see a positive response. And we say, oh man, it is on. It is, this is it. Man, this is what we live for. Preacher, we got to figure out how to do this because we got to go in Opelousas and do this. Man, you excited yet? I know some of you are. That gift of evangelism is strong with some of you. But hold on. A positive response. They, they leave with her and they come to him. We see a positive request at the end of verse 40. They came to him. They asked him to stay with them. So they go out. They meet him. They are completely intrigued. They say, listen, just stay with us. You can imagine that. As a believer, you can imagine that. You can imagine that, 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 that Jesus shows up and you don't ever want him to leave. Be like the disciples. Hey, man, if you're leaving, we're going with you. What are you talking about? In John chapter 14, I don't care where you're going. I'm coming with you. You can't leave me here. We understand that. It was a positive request. They, they, they've received the testimony of this woman in an inexplicably, inexplicably positive way. There's been a positive response. They rush out of town with her. They meet him there. They're even more intrigued than they were on the way out there, and they ask him to stay, and look at what he says. He stayed there with them two days. We're going to find out why it was two days in a minute. We're going to find out why he stayed at all here in a minute. 
We start in verse 41 and we see the development away from a shallow faith. We see the development of a sincere faith. Up until now, they're excited about what this woman had to say about him. They're excited about what they've been told that he does, what they've been told that he can do. He knows all about my life. The Messiah is coming. And they had in these illusions of grandeur that Messiah is going to do things that we expect the way that we expect them to be done. And we'll have this miracle worker walking among us, and maybe we can get in good with him. That's what the disciples wanted. Remember, big brother and little brother, Boanerges, the, the beloved apostle of love and his maniacal preaching brother James come to him and say, hey, we want the right and left hand of this, the throne. That's what all of them were thinking. They just incorporated their mom, who was probably Jesus's aunt. Hey, you go talk to him. He wasn't too moved by that either, but these people have this shallow faith thus far. They're, they're excited about him, but we see that shallow faith turn to a sincere faith, and we're going to see what the mechanism for that is. Thus far, she's gone and done all that she can do. She's introducing them to Jesus. I believe that this is him. I, have a, I don't know a lot about him, but I am compelled and convinced that this is the Christ, and I want you to know about him. He just has this, this vigor, this desire to tell others about this salvation that she has found in him. She can't even explain why. She's just overwhelmed. We're going to see that shallow faith deepen to a sincere faith. Verse 41, we see a positive clarification. It needs, it needs to be clarified. Up until this time, the people had believed. Why? They believed in him because, verse 39, of the woman's testimony. But there needed to be another step. Because you don't get to heaven on another person's faith. You don't get to heaven because of the, the family name that you have or their upbringing. I'll tell you, maybe one of the most dangerous places that you can exist is exist in a preacher's house, in a, a Bible-preaching preacher's house. Because you may just have in your mind that I'm a little bit closer than those other kids because my daddy's the preacher. Everyone is born equally far from the cross, friend. It's an impassable gulf. If we all ran out of here and jumped out in the ocean and tried to jump to the nearest oil rig, some of us would go a little farther than the others, but nobody would even get close, and that's where we are as people. No one's close enough to, to rely on how they were born. We can't rely on another person's faith. She said, this is the man that told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And many believed that this would be the God. They took her testimony. But look where, look at this positive clarification in verse 41. Many more believe because, class, of his word. Now they've been confronted with him. Friends, we don't follow men. You don't need a man to follow. You need an example like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Certainly we need men to lead. I don't mean to say that, but I'm not the end for you. I'm not your soul ticket into heaven. I'm not your, your, your soul anything. You go to God on his terms yourself. He has designed the church. He has, he has gifted and compelled men to lead in the church, but that is as far as it goes. Your salvation is between you and the Lord, not me and you and the Lord. 
We must be led to Christ, and then we follow Christ alone. And these people have been brought to him, and there's a clarification made in verse 41. Many more believed. Look at this word, many. Many from that town. Many more believed. It's just, it's overwhelming what's going on here. The the language is that the whole town is coming to repentance and faith in Christ. But this is not merely something that is collective. It is personal. It's the whole town, but it's each person individually, each man, each woman, each child individually. Each one must personally come to faith in Christ. We don't have Jesus to go to and ask face to face. We have this book to go to. And he still speaks in this book. When John said that the word became flesh, we now have John's gospel, which is a written word about the living word that tells us about him and what he taught. We have the epistles that are the commentary on the Gospels that tell us how to live a life that Jesus Christ has saved us to live. How to live a life that the Holy Spirit is able to take the Word of God and and apply in our heart and cause us to live in a way that he will accept. In John's prologue, he set the stage for all of this in verse 12. Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Okay, so he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him. But friends, that's the group you want to be in. That's the group this Samaritan woman and these people in this village of Sychar are becoming this group of those who did believe in his name, those who received him, who did believe in his name. He gave to them the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. What we see going on here is a revival that the Holy Spirit has been working on and has brought to fruition, and these people are those who have come to know Jesus Christ on his terms, and they have put their faith and trust in him. They believed because of his word, what he had to say, what he told them. What did he have to say, preacher? Go and read what he had to say. Go and read the Sermon on the Mount. You think he had a different message everywhere that he went? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You must turn from your sin. I will be living water for you that will well up in your soul to eternal life. He's telling them what he told her. In this two days that he is there, you imagine how many questions they must have asked. They only had him for two days. They must have barraged him with questions. It must have just been a constant barrage of questions. Beginning of verse 42. We see a positive correction. They realize something. They're moving in a positive direction. They, they realize that they have progressed from where they began with this shallow faith, and they are, they're letting us know, and the Holy Spirit is letting us know that they have moved from a shallow faith to a sincere faith, and they're making a positive correction in their discussion with this lady. It, yes, you were the instrument that brought the gospel to us, but we no longer believe because of what you said. Look at what they say. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. It comes to the point that, that we no longer go, we, we, we come to such a, a, an understanding and a knowledge of this book as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord that we're not having to go and ask the preacher or some religious leader or, or the person that, that brought the gospel to us. We're not having to go and ask them to answer all of the questions because we go to the answer book. And Jesus was 
the living and abiding word of God as he walked this planet. They went to the one that was the word to get the word. And they said, we believe because of his word. It is no longer because of what you have said, because we have had a personal encounter with him ourselves. A sincere faith that is not based on what, well, you know, what, 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 what Sister Renee told us. That's what, that's, they go, you don't go around telling people, hey, you need to be saved because our preacher said so. I hope you don't say that. That is what I say, but that's not where the authority lies. Because at that point, you come to somebody and say, oh, well, my preacher said this. Well, let's end the argument. What does the Bible say? Because both of them may disagree with the Bible, but the Bible is always the authority. They welcomed him. They said it is now because of, uh, of what, what he says that we believe. You know, this stands in stark contrast with John chapter 3 and Jesus dealing with Nicodemus. Friends, this stands in stark contrast even yet as to the disciples because Jesus has yet to ask the disciples what they think about him. These Samaritans immediately believed. John chapter 6, Peter and the other disciples, they're having to decide, what are we going to do, man? He's just said some hard things that no one can accept and everybody left except us. And he turned to him and said, are you going to leave too? Peter said, man, I kind of would like to, but where am I going to go? You have the words of life. I just, I've got to surrender myself to, to what you say. Matthew chapter 15, we read this morning, we see the Pharisees juxtaposed with a Canaanite woman. In Matthew's gospel, that Canaanite woman had to have been the lowest class of person on the planet. The Pharisees came, and their response, they see the same guy. They see the sa- he's doing the same things that she sees and the same things that they see. And they come to him and they say, hey, buddy, you're not doing things on our terms. You're not washing your hands before you eat. Not like some of you germaphobes. It didn't mean that you need to go wash the dirt off your hands. There was a ceremonial cleaning that went along with that. And they said, you don't go through the ceremony before you eat. And Jesus said, yeah, I don't do that. It's baloney. It's a, it's a teaching of men. Why do you violate the word of God by your traditions? And he launches into the... the the calling of, of Corbin. Now, I could help my, my ailing parents, but I've given it to God, so you're using God as the excuse to disobey the word of God and dishonor your parents. Drop the microphone. They didn't have a response. Actually, they did. They decided to kill him. That was the only thing they could do. He walks along. This Canaanite woman comes, and she says, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is sick. And he refused, he didn't even acknowledge her. And we could get into why he didn't. And when he finally does acknowledge her, he said, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. It's not right to give the children's food to the dogs. And we look at that and said, oh, he called her a dog? Nah. There was a difference in their day between a dog, a pet dog, and a, a, a mongrel dog. And what he's describing is, some of you have animals in your house. You have, some of you loony birds have cats in your house. I don't even understand that. Some of you have little dogs that make a good lunch for a bull master. That's in your house. The little lunchbox dog comes and jumps in your lap, and you treat it better than your kids. And you give them treats that you won't buy for your kids. My wife does, too. I'm not just picking on everybody, and on, on anybody. I'm picking on everybody. Jesus said, it's not right to give the food, take food out of my kid's mouth to give to the pet even. And she said, yeah, but even the pet gets the crumbs that fall from where? From the master's table. And he said, oh, woman, great is your faith. 
I've just confronted the Pharisees to tell the whole world they're waiting for me, and they're telling me that I'm not doing things right because I don't listen to them. And this woman comes and says, I deserve nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to your provision I cling. My only hope is you. That's this woman in Samaria. That's these people in Samaria. This is how they come to him. They come to him on his terms. And we see a proper consecration to, to consecrate themselves to him completely. Listen to what they say. This is a Jewish rabbi that we have despised our entire lives. Remember the context. We've been raised and taught that those people are not as good as we are. And they've been raised and been taught that we're not as good as they are. And that they're out to get us and we're out to get them. And yet these people are going to come to the point that they are willing to give themselves completely over to this Jewish rabbi that they just moments and days before would have told you that they despised, but they have come to know something about him, and they are consecrating their lives to him. We are bowing our knee to him. Look at the end of verse 42. No longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know, we have become convinced of this fact, that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the Messiah that has come to be the Savior of the world. This is the one that the Lord promised in Genesis chapter 3 that he would send as the seed of the woman to crush the serpent on our behalf. This is the son of David that has come to set up God's kingdom to redeem God's people. This is the one that he told Abraham, through your seed I will bless the world. We have become convinced that this is the one. It is a proper consecration derived from a sincere belief. But then there's always verses 43 to 45. Selfish belief. I don't think I need to illustrate this a whole lot. Verses 43 and 44, we see a, a helpful respite on the Lord's part. After two days, he departed for Galilee. Verse 44 tells us why. And what it tells us is not why he left after two days. It tells us why he took those two days off. He's en route to Galilee. He's going north. He had to pass through Samaria. He stays here for two days. They asked him to stay, and it says he stayed two days. They wanted him to stay. They didn't want him to leave. He stayed two days. It says, after two days he departed. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Man, how true that is. Think about the people from Galilee, all the people in hell that lived in Galilee, that knew Jesus, that watched Jesus. They didn't give him any honor. He shows up in Nazareth, takes the scroll, reads the scroll, and says, Behold, today, that Savior that the Scripture promised right here has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one. You know what they did? They took him out to throw him off the cliff. But they couldn't because it wasn't his time. His time would come sometime later on a cross on the 15th of Nisan, or the 14th of Nisan in AD 33. That day was coming, but it wasn't yet. He needed a respite, and he stays here where he is welcomed and honored. You can imagine him leaving and them holding on to his clothes, not wanting to let him go. Let me see, he comes into verse 45, he comes to Galilee. 
He has a heartfelt reception, at least from these people's position. And this is where we want to really find ourselves. Because from their perspective, it tells us in, in John chapter 2 that Jesus knew the heart of every man. He did not need anyone to bear witness about man, for he himself knows what is in man. He knows what's coming for him when he gets to Galilee. He knows that there is no honor for a prophet in his own hometown. But we see this heartfelt reception, and it's heartfelt from the people that are receiving him there in the beginning of verse 45. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They, they opened the door. They welcomed him in. From their perspective, it was a heartfelt reception. For now, it's not going to last long. He knows that. He just had two days of respite. To, to, he, was, he was beleaguered when he got there. He was sitting beside the well, wearied from his journey, worn out. He takes two days of, 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 of a break here, has some respite. He arrives to a heartfelt reception but there's something that he knows that John tells us here that these people in Galilee didn't know. And it's something that people in the modern church, and especially in modern evangelicalism in the United States, need to understand this. That the reason that they welcomed Jesus there was based on a hurtful rationale. It was a heartfelt reception. But it was based on a hurtful rationale. Why did they welcome him there? They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. They had gone to the feast too. You remember what he did when he was in Jerusalem? He made a court of whips and he drove the money changers out of the temple. He saw a guy that was doing things the way they liked it. Oh yeah, this guy's going to give me what I want. I've been wanting somebody to do this. We'll get behind him. You've got to be careful, friend. When, when any prospective member of this church meets with the elders and and. In, in the little interview that we have, one thing that I try to tell everybody is, listen, what brought you here is what keeps you here. And if you are here because of me, you're going to leave here because of me, and that'll be much sooner than you anticipate. Because I, you're not here to follow me. Now, when this pulpit dries up and we're preaching something other than the Word of God, we can have that discussion. When you've got to go to Herman and ask, where's the beef? We've got another discussion. For those of you that remember the Wendy's commercial... When I start to come up here and try to tell you that Jesus will do this, that, and the other thing and give you a list of reasons why you come to Jesus and all of them have to do with the selfish desires of your heart, you can get rid of me then. Give us what we want from you. Is what they're saying. You come in here because you're, you're doing what we like. He doesn't tell them he's Messiah. They just know that this guy stood up to the religious leaders. This is the revolutionary we've been looking for. They don't see him as the savior of the world. They see him as the one that drove out the money changers. They didn't like the money changers either because with the money changers gone, maybe now we can bring an affordable lamb to Passover. It's the same group of people that are going to be in, in John chapter 6 to follow him across the lake. And he says, you came here because you want your belly full. You're not here to serve the Lord. They were there to take advantage of him, to use and abuse him. Friends, that is a common reality today. But that is not the Jesus of the gospel. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is not some cosmic need meter that just comes in and gives you what you need and makes your life smoother and easier. You know why your life is hard? Most of the time, because of you. Choices you make, 
things you decide to do, attitudes you harbor. Most of the time, sometimes it's not. You need a Savior to come in and fix you. Bruce Barton says this, As a result of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, her bold witness in town and the people's curiosity, many became believers. The choice is a significant challenge to the whole person, the mind, the will, emotions, experience. The response is profound but not complicated. At some point, a person's mind must stop asking how. His will must stop asking why. His emotions must set fear and every other emotion aside, and his experience must not be allowed to say Jesus can't be trusted either. Jesus' proof was compelling. John was convinced and believed. The Samaritans were convinced and believed, and so have millions of others. The unavoidable question for each person is this. Have I believed in Jesus? And that is where we find the end of this. The Samaritans believed in the Jesus of the Bible, and the Galileans believed in the Jesus of their own making. One group was saved and one was not. The gospel is not open for debate. And there is one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What will you do with him? Stand and we'll pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together this day. We thank you for your word. And Father, we praise you that you have given your spirit to be our guide and and our interpreter, that we are able to understand this. The Holy Spirit is the one that applies the word of God, that brings the the agony and the irritation to our heart and our spirit as, as our flesh is confronted so often in the preaching of the word. I pray that you will have your full way in every heart here. Bless your people for being here this day and be honored in our lives. We pray it in the unmatched and unrivaled name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.